0: TNB Tech Minute gives you the day's top tech headlines, from the big names in Silicon Valley to the halls of power. If it's making news in tech, we've got it. Check out TNB Tech Minute in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. Hey, I'm Veronica Dagger, and this is The Wall Street Journal, Secrets of Wealthy Women, where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today we're speaking with Native American scholar, advocate, and attorney, Sarah Deer. Sarah is a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation in Oklahoma and a professor of gender studies at the University of Kansas. As a legal specialist, she's dedicated her life to helping Native survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. In 2014, she won a MacArthur Genius Grant for her work and she's the author of the book, The Beginning and End of Rape. Confronting sexual violence in Native America. For more than 25 years, Sarah has worked to close the gaps in jurisdictions that impact Native women. She's helped change laws, co authored four textbooks on tribal law, testified before Congress four times, and was appointed by former Attorney General Eric Holder to chair a federal advisory committee on sexual violence in Indian country. She's here today to talk to us about how a recent Supreme Court ruling may impact survivors, how she discovered her passion, and why questions of identity matter. Welcome, Sarah, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Our pleasure. Sarah, you're a lawyer and a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation. That tribe was at the center of the recent Supreme Court ruling of McGirt versus Oklahoma. Would you distill for us what happened in this case and what do you think it means for the Muskogee and other tribal nations?
1: this is a victory that we're calling, you know, sort of a once in a century kind of victory for our issues. So it starts when um, my people, the Muscogee Creek people were in the southeastern part of the United States. That's where our people originally are from, or neighbors to the Cherokees, which some people have heard, you know, they're familiar with Cherokee history, but not necessarily Creek history. So we came on the Trail of Tears as well. We were forced west to Indian territory. But when we got there, we signed several treaties with the United States states throughout the 19th century that promised that that land would be forever ours. So it's very straightforward in terms of this is what the treaty says, and this is how it should be interpreted. Over the last probably 100 years, the state of Oklahoma has ignored that treaty or treated it as a null and void. So what this Supreme Court decision says is that our original reservation boundaries Not necessarily the land within those boundaries, but the reservation boundaries stay the same as they did in the treaty from 1866. So that's a really unusual win for tribes to win a treaty case in the 21st century. How important is this ruling? The ruling has ramifications, not just for our tribe, but for other tribes in Oklahoma. And potentially, depending on the other kinds of litigation going on, it could set some precedent for tribes anywhere in the United States, because it's about interpreting treaties and interpreting congressional acts that deal with the sovereignty of tribal nations. Right now, it's locally focused, but I think potentially the case will be cited for cases outside of Oklahoma as well.
0: Your work has focused on the impact of the legal system on Native women, especially on the survivors of violent crimes. Will this ruling have implications in these kinds of cases?
1: Yes. So the question of who can prosecute within a reservation is unnecessarily complicated by uh, federal laws and Supreme Court cases. But essentially, the responsibility for responding to crime on the reservation after McGirt will mean that both the federal government and the tribal government will share jurisdiction, concurrent jurisdiction, as we call it in the legal sense, over crimes that happen within the reservation. The federal government will have the authority to prosecute crimes that are committed by both Native people and non-Native people, whereas the tribal nations will have jurisdiction over suspects who are, are Native. And so there's a real shift then from state authority, which is what Oklahoma had been doing, to sort of a new framework in Oklahoma where the federal and the tribal nations are going to have
0: shared authority over crime. The name of this landmark case is McGirt versus Oklahoma. Jim C. McGirt, who won the case, is actually a convicted sex offender. And as a result of this victory, his rape conviction was overturned because of the location of where the crime was committed should have been considered outside the reach of state criminal law. What impact does that have on McGirt's victims? I'm so glad you asked that, because
1: that's the sort of part of the story that we're not hearing in the mainstream media. So McGirt was convicted of a series of sex offenses that were considered so heinous that he received a 1,000-year sentence in Oklahoma State Court. So the quandary, I guess, that I'm thinking about is McGirt is a victory for tribal nations, but it's going to hurt the people who came forward and reported him. And I think both of those things can be true at the same time, a heinous crime and a victory for tribal sovereignty, but it's very complicated. So we don't want to forget the victims in these cases, because if they hadn't come forward, none of this would have happened, right? So unfortunately, the case will always be named after him instead of sort of highlighting the strength of his victims in this case. But unfortunately, whatever the caption is in front of the Supreme Court is what the case will always be known as.
0: Native communities have also been especially hard hit by the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. What are you hearing from communities?
1: There's a couple of things going on. One is that we are, as many marginalized people in this country, are indeed more at risk. There's higher rates of diabetes and lung disease and heart disease in tribal communities as a result of a lot of different factors, but the pre-existing health conditions within some of our communities have made us much more vulnerable. In addition, we have this sort of history, right, with pandemics and with smallpox that wiped out, in some cases, 70 to 80 percent of some tribal communities and granted, that was, you know, a hundred or more years ago. But the reality of that history of diseases wiping out huge numbers of Native people is not lost on our contemporary uh, leaders who are very anxious to prevent that kind of thing from happening again.
0: What does this mean for some Native women who are survivors or in quarantine with their abusers? Well, I think this applies really across
1: the board, but access to shelter programs, to health care and the like are obviously stretched thin right now. But also folks that, you know, can't leave the home because of the virus, whether they're self-isolating or quarantined, if they're living with their abuser, this is providing a more dangerous environment for our survivors who need a safe space and can't get there due to the virus.
0: I'd like to go back a bit. Your dad is native. What influence did his heritage have on you, and did it help shape your identity as a feminist? That's
1: so interesting. That I've, I actually don't think I've ever thought about the intersection of sort of my identity as a woman and a feminist with my identity as a native person. My father is also a lawyer, and he was a judge, one of the first native state court judges in the nation when I was a child. So I grew up, you know, knowing a lot about, um, maybe more than my peers, about the legal system because of his position. As a native person, you know, when you you don't live on native land, when you grow up in an urban environment, which is uh, the case for the majority of native people in this country, do not uh, live on reservations You tend to see more of a pan-Indian experience, so it's not necessarily tribal-specific in the urban areas. There's a lot of sort of inter-tribal work, people who come from all different kinds of cultures that come together to celebrate and to uh, work together, which is a little different than living and working on a reservation. In terms of my identity as a woman and a feminist, I remember early on when I started learning about gender discrimination, um, coming to both of my parents and saying, what is discrimination all about? And what does that mean for me? And I think the guidance I got from both of my parents was the old kind of cliche, girls can do anything, you know, which was in the 1970s. It was kind of a a novel idea, but it hit home. And so I guess from there, I just Kept that somewhere in the back of my mind that, you know, girls can do anything, women can do anything, and to not let people's opinions about gender, color, what you can accomplish.
0: You volunteered at a rape crisis hotline when you were 20. How did that experience impact you?
1: I think probably despite the fact that I have a bachelor's degree and a law degree, I think in many ways I learned more from my work as a rape crisis advocate than I ever did in a classroom. I think part of that is because you're working directly with people who have experienced something that is so painful, it's almost unspeakable. And the way in which people move through that moment, whether they were assaulted yesterday or 20 years ago is very individual to each person. There's not a typical response to sexual assault. It sort of runs the gamut from stoicism and lack of emotion to, you know, really very almost suicidal feelings and everything in between. So I think from that experience and being honored to serve in that role as an advocate, I think I learned more about sort of the human condition and the ability of people to survive trauma than you can ever really learn in a classroom setting.
0: What made you want to go into law? Well, (laughs) I think
1: I resisted it for quite a while because, you know, that was kind of what my father always wanted me to do. And I wasn't necessarily wanting to follow other people's paths for me. But I think when I started doing volunteer work as a rape crisis advocate, I think I quickly saw the ways in which the legal system did not provide justice for survivors of sexual assault or any crime. And I sat through many jury trials, many jury rape trials, and I thought, you know, I could do that. I could learn to be a prosecutor, and maybe I could do it, you know, with victims more centered in the process. And so when I initially went to law school, I was focusing my work on criminal law, But it's interesting that I I never really practiced criminal law. I started out law school saying, you know, I'll be a prosecutor. And then by the end, I had changed my mind. But that was my impetus, was really concerned about social justice for survivors.
0: We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Sarah talks about her success and the importance of identity.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. There's more to being a successful entrepreneur than just good business practices. What is it about an entrepreneur's childhood that helped fuel their entrepreneurial spirit? What are entrepreneurs doing to cultivate this spirit in their own children and build a legacy beyond their business? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shopeia dives deeper with leading entrepreneurs on these topics and more. Find The Road to Why, where you listen to your favorite podcasts.
0: You played an important role in getting the Tribal Law and Order Act of 2010 passed, as well as the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act. Just briefly, would you explain these two acts for our listeners and how they're connected?
1: Sure. Well, I'll just focus on the tribal portion of the laws. Tribal Law and Order Act is applicable to all tribal nations. So one of the very odd restrictions on tribal courts is that we are only allowed to sentence people who commit crimes like sexual violence to a maximum of one year. And that's because Congress passed a law in 1968 basically saying that tribes would have limited authority to incarcerate and that was going to be one year. Well, if you imagine a murder case or a child sex abuse case or a rape case, getting one year in any other context would just be laughable. So we worked very hard to change a lot of things for tribal courts. And this will seem minimal, but it was a victory at the time that we were able to get Congress to allow up to three years per offense. And believe me, that was a fight. Now tribal nations in some places, if they choose to opt in, can sentence an offender to up to three years. Now, with the Violence Against Women Act, we had an even more difficult thing to overcome. Tribal nations, as of 1978, I think it's so interesting that these are 20th century laws and people usually think of the harm done to tribal nations as being something sort of relegated to the 19th century or before. So in 1978, the Supreme Court ruled that tribal nations cannot prosecute anyone who is not also a native person. So that means that if you're on a reservation and a non-Native commits an act of violence or any crime for that matter, the tribal nation is not allowed to do anything, prosecute the crime. They have to depend on the local government or the federal government to prosecute those crimes in our absence, in a sense. And so with the Violence Against Women Act that was reauthorized in 2013, we finally were able to chip away at that prohibition just slightly. And so today, tribal nations have the option of prosecuting non-natives, but only for crimes involving domestic violence or protection orders. So we're still not able to prosecute rape or child sex abuse or murder committed by a non-Indian on the reservation.
0: What's changed for survivors because of these acts? And what do you think still needs to change? What would you like to see?
1: We had to be strategic about what survivors really needed. And one of our major concerns was that with domestic violence in particular, typically the federal government will not prosecute that unless it's really, really violent and somebody's nearly been killed or they have a serious bodily injury or they end up in the hospital. If you have a couple where the perpetrator is non-native and the victim is native, then we were able to convince Congress that that should be prosecuted in tribal court. And these are perpetrators who have married or had a baby or dated someone within the tribe. So in a way, they're already on notice that they could be held accountable by the tribal government, whereas other non-natives who aren't in this relationship might not expect that their behavior could be controlled by the tribal government. Now, I disagree with that characterization, but that is indeed, you know, sort of how Congress thought about the issue. So we're going back with the next iteration of the Violence Against Women Act. We're going back and asking for more jurisdiction to be returned to us, criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians that commit other types of crime uh, other than domestic violence, because the victims are the ones that fall through the cracks. They're the first people to be hurt by these kind of crazy laws, very contradictory and confusing jurisdictional questions. And victims are the usually the first people to lose when there's a crisis of questioning, like, who has authority here? You don't see this in any other kind of situation in the United States except for Indian reservations.
0: I want to talk more about your career and some big milestones You've been very successful as a scholar and you won the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship which awards fellows about $650,000 with basically no strings attached. How did winning the MacArthur change your professional and financial life?
1: It was a shock, I guess is the first thing I'll say. I had no idea that I was, you know, in the running for this, so the phone call came sort of out of left field. I think I cried on the phone when they told me, you know, it raised my profile quite a bit. Once you get in that list of MacArthur fellows, like, you know, the media is more likely to contact you. People want you to write things for their journals. So it initially, I mean, poor me, right? (laughs) It was very stressful. I had a lot of people who wanted, you know, my time to talk to them about my work. And that has never uh, really subsided. I mean, here I am, right, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with another interview, and, and it's it's been over six years. So that was raising my profile and the validation that came with that, that the work that I was doing was really worthy of national attention, um, was a huge confidence booster for me. In terms of the cash, yeah, uh, I was able to pay off my student loans before... Mm. I turned 50, which was kind of the plan, That's awesome. <laughs> um, you pay him off by the time I was 50. I was able to sort of travel to places that I wanted to learn more about. I was able to, uh, I actually, I hope, I don't know if the MacArthur people are listening, but I redecorated my office. <laughs> 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 um, I, I, did, I needed a, I needed, I thought one of the first things that I really want that I really need is a, a workspace, um, you know, with, and so I had a sort of a built in desk and cabinets and shelves made. And it was a much uh, more comforting, sort of relaxing environment for me to work from home. Uh, and I think that was money well spent. You know, you, you, you need spaces where you can feel like you can
0: do good work.
1: Um, that was one thing that I splurged on.
0: You're both a citizen of the Muskogee Creek Nation and the United States. How do you think that's informed your work and given you a unique perspective?
1: I think from one standpoint as a lawyer, you know, you learn the system and you learn to appreciate the system. And even if it has flaws, right, that the the foundation of the system is, is one we can celebrate. The Constitution, we cherish the Bill of Rights in this country, right? And so I think that part of my identity is in conflict sometimes with my identity as a tribal citizen. Because as a tribal citizen, you look at the Declaration of Independence, right? And we're called savages right there in the Declaration of Independence. The founding of this country required the disappearance of Native people. So on the one hand, I'm engaged with the American legal system because that's what I know and that's what I've learned and studied and that's how I operate. But it's always in tension, right, with this idea that tribal nations are a relic of the past and don't have relevance and that Native people have sort of disappeared or assimilated or melted into the American pot. And I think that's constantly sort of a tension that I see. How much do I engage in the United States legal system that never seems to support tribal nations until, of course, a couple of weeks ago?
0: We talked about the legal ramifications of the Tribal Law and Order Act and the new Supreme Court decision. Let's talk about it a bit more broadly. What impact do these decisions about tribal sovereignty have on Native communities and people like yourself when it comes to your identity?
1: Hmm. Got to think about that one. I th- I think. You know, as as um, unlike I think you know a racial minority, um, tribal citizens tend to think of themselves as members of a government with many different races. So tribal nations include people who are black, white, Asian, Latinx, not necessarily a racial category. I think that's misunderstood by a lot of folks, but we're governments and governments over time have you know, included people of different races. So despite the fact that you might not live on a reservation or live within Indian country, You still have a tribal identity and that's tied to a a sovereign entity. So even if the tribal land decisions like McGirt don't directly affect you because you live in Denver or Albuquerque, um, there still is a sense of our tribe's future depends on the sustainment of tribal sovereignty. And so even if it doesn't affect you day to day, you still have a sense of pride in that identity and you still like to see tribal nations succeed and do well as governments.
0: The entire country has been having conversations about racial justice in recent months, and that's led to some major cultural changes. The NFL team in Washington has dropped their long controversial mascot from their name. Statues of Christopher Columbus have been taken down, and companies have started reevaluating the way they use native people and imagery to sell products. How important are these cultural changes for the work that you're doing, and do they matter?
1: Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that, because there are a lot of things happening at the same time right now. I do believe that Native people in the United States owe a debt of gratitude to the Black Lives Matter movement, because even though it doesn't necessarily elevate our voices, it certainly opened up spaces to talk about racism against Native people. And so I owe a debt to the organizers and the the protesters in the Black Lives movement. I think when we're talking about mascots and products, I think that what we're really talking about is the stereotypes, right? The idea that Native people are this or Native people are that and sort of capturing a stereotype and sort of repeatedly engaging with those stereotypes and to the point where, you know, your average American, maybe the only thing they know about Indian country or Native people is from Disney's Pocahontas, right? And so it's a very warped and inaccurate characterization of Native people and mascots are kind of the worst. But I think one thing that's worth noting that's a little frustrating from my perspective is that there have been folks you know, working on the Washington football team's slur decades, right? Native people speaking up, going to protests, going to Congress, going to the courts, doing anything that that we can And then once the shareholders of FedEx and Pepsi were suddenly offended, you know, there was a quick change like within a few short days. And so I'm glad that they're not going to use that slur anymore. And so whatever made that happen is good, but it is disappointing that Native people themselves were not a sufficient stakeholder to consider because we've been asking for this for decades.
0: Going forward, what do you think is going to have the larger impact, the laws or these bigger conversations about race and identity?
1: Oh, it's hard for me to separate the two. It really is. Because one sort of feeds into the other. I mean, if you have stereotypes of Native women as being sort of promiscuous or, you know, the Halloween costumes in particular, right, the the Pocahontas or, you know, different sexy costumes for Indian princesses, right? That sends a message that's very like a very highly sexualized Native body, right? You know, we see that stereotype then play out in the criminal setting where we have, in some cases, perpetrators that target Native women because of this racism and dehumanization that happens. So it's hard for me to really separate one from the other.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was a real pleasure.
0: If you'd like to hear more stories of inspiring women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe. Share us on social media and give us a review. Our producer is Trinae Nori. Our executive producer is Kateri Okum. Additional help from personal finance editor, Beré Lamb. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.